The Athletic. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. I'm Ian Irving and what a treat we have today. A full house on Talk of the Devils. Good morning, Carl Anker. Morning, mate. How are you getting on? I'm good. Good morning, Andrew Mitten. Good morning, mate. Looking forward to this. Good morning. And, wow, good morning, Laurie Whitwell. I thought you were going to give him a full name there because you gave Andrew Mitten. It's Lawrence Whitwell. I thought you were going to give me the full title, Ian, but I'm great to be here. Yeah, I'm, I just wouldn't do that to anyone calling them Lawrence, mate. No wonder you're short on it. Do you know why? My mum loves Little Women. I probably shouldn't admit to this. Do you what? know the character Laurie on Little Women? The guy. Oh, sorry, it's a TV oh, yeah. programme. A TV, it's a book! Oh, is it? Oh, and, a, and a lovely film, actually. It's a, it's a great, great film. film. A great yeah, film. Yeah. Timothy Sha- Chamelet. Yeah, yeah. The, the rate yeah. of Anyway, yeah. I've got absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Andy, oh. have you any idea? No, you might, you might as well be talking in Swahili for all I know. Here. I've no idea what this thing is. Probably recommended. I, I think we better move on <laughs> yeah. and talk about yeah. stuff that we all know yeah. about. I mean, it's been a great start. It is World Book Day as well. It's World Book it Day. World what Book an appropriate Day. start. We all knew that, didn't we? And that's why we did that little aside at the start. But during the course of Talk of the Devils today, we're going to preview the Manchester derby this weekend. We're going to talk about the form of Marcus Rashford heading into it, who of course has been a derby hero on many occasions. And we'll also round up the best of the rest from the Athletics, speaking about free kicks, speaking about the UEFA Youth League, speaking about Lee Sharp and Manchester United's search for a new manager and the very latest on that. But let's start then by previewing the game on Sunday. It's a huge match. It's one of the matches we always look forward to every single year, especially those in and around the city of Manchester as the city is divided into red and blue once more. And actually, it's five years ago this month, incredible this, I can't believe it's five years ago, but it's five years ago this month that Marcus Rashford became the youngest Manchester Derby goalscorer in Premier League history, scoring the winner at the Etihad Stadium aged just 18 years and 141 days. Rashford, he's in here, he scores! Marcus Rashford takes yet another step up the ladder and it's a lad from Manchester. What a moment that was, absolutely incredible. Andy, as if it's five years ago, by the way. I know, time flies, doesn't it? I'd like to say when you're having fun, but it hasn't been a funny five years for Manchester United. Not won a trophy for five years coming up. So, But I remember that clearly. And buzzing off it, I think Marcus was the only Mancunian on the pitch and it was a great finish. He was he was a young lad and part of me is quite sorry because Marcus's stock has fallen um, since then in terms of his performances. I'd love to see him back to a level um, where he was. I remember the day after that game, I got on a flight from Manchester to Barcelona and I, as I walked through the front of the cabin, even though it was a budget airline, uh, lots of Manchester City senior officials were on the plane because lots of them are Catalans who live in Barcelona and I, I recognise them and I don't know them and I pretended to make a phone call and say no we, we won we did them 1-0 yeah but I, a Mancunian scored it brilliant the old city's buzzing and I realise it's very very immature of me to do that but that's just me. I'm sorry. That's what I'm like. I enjoyed it. And I'm prob- I'm sure they were thinking, what a knob. But I enjoyed it. And if it happens again, I'll do exactly the same thing. So watch out for it, Ferran Soriano. 
Yeah, I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> he's a big fan of uh, <laughs> of our podcast, I'm sure. Laurie, um, yeah, his stock has fallen a little bit of late, but it's easy to forget, in a sense, really, just how incredible Rashford was at that point and how he was sort of doing things that no young Mancunian striker had done for Manchester United before. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I love Andy's story there. It just brings back memories of Dom Jolly, you know, with his massive, big, whatever mobile phone it was, <laughs> annoying people. So Andy, yeah, I, I can totally picture the scene. But I think what you're talking about there, actually, is probably the, the enjoyment that you got from a guy like Marcus Rashford coming through the academy and scoring such a, a really good goal, a winning goal at the Etihad, showing no fear. I mean, he went through a ridiculous run, didn't he, of scoring on his debut um, in the Premier League, FA Cup for England. It was it was ridiculous, wasn't it? This kind of run that he was on. Um, and I mean, to be fair, he has he has delivered in in sort of sort of big moments, you know. And it's perhaps not been as frequent as people would would have liked. There were certainly moments, you know, in that 2019-20 season where he kind of carried the team. And I actually watched that Manchester derby at the Etihad when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's job was, was pretty much on the line. He had that sort of back-to-back win, winning sequence against Tottenham and, and Man City. Um, I watched that match with uh, a guy called David Horrocks, who's Fletcher Moss's chairman, who which is the, the boys' club that Marcus Rashford came through. So I went to his house, really lovely guy. Uh, and the match went perfectly for the piece because, you know, Rashford was on fire. United played really well. And then at the end, Rashford's taking his shirt off, going into the crowd. I think Jesse Lingard was there as well, doing the same thing. And he he played a little bit for Fletcher Moss um, when he was a young kid. Um, and it was really lovely seeing this guy that had obviously first met Marcus when he was, you know, seven, eight years old. I think he used to give um, Melanie's mum lifts sometimes to, to train in, you know, he used to help out a little bit. Um, and he was just so kind of paternalistic, I suppose, in saying, oh, look, look, Marcus has got his shirt off and how excited he was. And so I think that we have to hold on to that kind of, picture because he is a Manchester lad and if we can get a team where you've got just a few of those you know golden nuggets in there it kind of makes those stories those moments all the more special because you feel a bit of a connection there hopefully I'm not getting too romantic about this kind of thing but I do think that's ultimately what football comes down to I don't think there's anything better no matter which team you support anywhere in the world than a local lad who's followed the club from being really small come through the academy broken into the first team and made an impact I just think there's nothing better than that. And whichever team you're at, whoever your youngster is, to see that and to witness that, that's one of us doing that effectively. And I think that's why it brings such romantic and such such just brilliant feeling, really, isn't it? I don't I don't really know any other way of summing it up. The flip side of that, Carl, I suppose, is that you celebrate those moments more because Marcus is a local lad, but then does he get more criticism when things are bad because he's a local lad? What do you think? I think it's a tricky one. Obviously, I'll preface this with, you know, I helped write his book. So, again, any conflict of interest there. When you look at this Manchester United team and you look at the five years of inconsistent, oh, maybe they're going to get serious and maybe not. And you look at the players who've been there for ages and have, have, have like really come up in the big moments. A lot of those big moments have Rashford in them. You talk about the PSG game, you talk about the games against City, you talk about big games in Europe. Uh, Rashford is there or thereabouts, and he has played a ridiculous amount of football in these five years. You know, he's openly talked about how when he was growing up, he looked up to Cristiano Ronaldo and looked up to Wayne Rooney. Uh, There's the story about how he was there for when the Brazilian Ronaldo scored a hat-trick at Old Trafford 
uh, in the Champions League. So, and he's got all that memory as well. And you can tell he gets properly fired up for the derby. He gets properly heated up when he wants to play against Liverpool. And his goal record against City is pretty good. He's played 14 times. He's got four goals and whatnot. And I think the interesting thing is, in terms of criticism, yeah, when it is that big game and he doesn't have a great game, you're almost expecting wait, but Rashford normally comes good in these games. We've seen him score against Liverpool. We've seen him score against PSG. We've seen him play with absolutely no fear against all these big teams. And when he doesn't have that great moment, you almost feel stung by it. I remember, you know, it's, it was for England, but when he came up for that penalty against Italy, I remember very confidently going to, to Jack Pitbrook, who covers um, Spurs, saying, Rashford doesn't miss penalties. This is, this is going in. And when he... You know, when the penalty didn't go in, I pretty much collapsed like that scene out of Boondock Saints. Um, so it, it does always surprise me when Rashford has one of those great opportunities in a big moment and he doesn't come off because he's come through so many times when he probably shouldn't have. And you have those moments where you're like, oh wait, you are human. Has he recovered from that penalty? If the opportunity to take another penalty comes up for Manchester United, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying he, he's not going to shy away from that opportunity if it's offered No, he's proved his strength of character in that regard, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the thing about him, Laurie, I suppose, this season, um, and I've just hesitated there before picking my words, really, because it's not been straightforward for him, has it, really? He's not had a a great season so far for a number of reasons. Um, Are we any closer to seeing him emerge from this period, Laurie? What do you think? Really don't know, because there's still such flux, isn't there, at Manchester United, with Ralph Ranić trying to pick the best team and it seems that you know his mind changes you know we saw Anthony Langer come on um, against Atletico Madrid and make a real impact so then he keeps his place against Watford and that's kind of the debate I suppose for the Manchester derby isn't it you've got another academy player coming through um, who's who's kind of on that arc that that, that Rashford was when he first um, emerged so you know what, what's the balance there with those two players but I think because he, you know, he has the, the positions kind of altered. It's sort of right or left. Although I suppose you kind of say, well, listen, you know, if, if you're a forward, you, you should be able to sort of manipulate um, in different positions. You look at Man City, you know, they, they they play all over the place, don't they? Liverpool, it's more set. Um, and I suppose the difference with Man City is that actually they've got a team full of players that know their roles. It's understanding. They've got coordination. Whereas at Man United, if you change your position, then it's it's perhaps not necessarily such an easy transition. I think we've seen, certainly in, in recent games, against Watford, for example, he came off the bench and put a real shift in. You, know, you could see him running about, and that's probably one of the criticisms, I think, that we've seen this season. How, can we see physically this desire, this love for the game that I think we, we first saw when he, when he broke through? And I think you perhaps could also say on the flip side of that, it, it, ha- it, it does get clouded in football. It's, it's such a, a brutal industry. Um, and you have managers that perhaps you know want different things from you, and there's been a, a lot of change at Manchester United to get that consistency of performance. Perhaps is quite difficult, but ultimately he does have to look at himself. The, the only way he can get through this kind of dip that he's had is by reapplying himself and, and, and absolutely adhering to what Ralph Rangnick asked him to do, um, showing that determination and desire that got him into this position in the first place. But I think he's, he's got that within him, hasn't he? You can see that he, he, he wants to still be the guy for Manchester United and it's just, it, it's been such a season of, of kind of, you know, disappointment all round really that I think he's kind of become um, a part of that problem rather than it being on him himself. 
Yeah, sometimes from the outside, it feels like he wants to be that person too much and he tries too hard to take games by the scruff of the neck and, and, and really sort of try to be the man for Manchester United. Rashford has a very obvious tell when he's trying to take the game by the scruff of the neck. So, you know, we know he, he likes the, the knuckleball technique. Uh, he does it on free kicks and whatnot because he's, you know, big fan of Ronaldo. And he often has a moment in around about the second half of games where he will try and cut inside on the left and just let fly a knuckleball shot. Sometimes it works, you know, hits the woodwork or is on target, but a lot of time it goes wide. But that genuinely seems to be his big sort of, I'm going to have a go. You can tell there, you know, there maybe two or three times in a game. I think this happened against Atletico Madrid where he, he sort of had a moment and it didn't quite work. And you, you know, he sort of like got a bit frustrated and you could see him sort of, the, you know, the cogs were turning turn his head and he went, right, the next time I get the ball, I'm going to shoot. Regardless of, you know, whether or not a passing opportunity is on. He gets the ball in the second half and then has a go with that knuckleball. And it wasn't a, from a great shooting position. I don't think uh, you know, that either goes in or everyone goes, why'd you shoot from there? Uh, he, and he does that two or three times. There are times when it does go in and it's amazing. It, there was a little spell where, I don't, I don't want to read into it too much, but uh, he did it against Spurs when they had a former Manchester United manager in charge. So Yes, I think Rashford stepped up that day. I remember that very well. Um, Andy, would you start him against City? I don't know. I think his stock's probably at its lowest point since he broke through to the first team. Um, I'd love him to be a great player for Manchester United. I'll always remember Manchester City's manager, Pep Guardiola, telling somebody... Marcus Rashford is the only player I would take from that club who I think could improve Manchester City. That's three and a half years ago since he said that now. Uh, this season um, has not been a good one for him. He started it with an injury. He's played in four different positions. I'm not sure that can be easy for him. He's played on the left, he's played on the right, he's played as a centre-forward, he's played as a second striker. I don't think his career trajectory has been as he would have hoped. He's, he's 24 years old now he looks frustrated to me and has done a lot of times again it can't be easy playing under under different managers and I don't think he, he makes himself an automatic starter for the derby game because he's, he's he's not been playing well I'd love him to do what Anthony Martial did in the derby last year when he was totally out of favour and ended up being Manchester United's man of the match I'd love it to come good for, for Marcus but it's not been a good season for him and when Ralph Rangnick is looking at the team, does he think um, this is Marcus who's, who has produced those great moments and that there has been a lot of them. And, and Carl's right to pick out one which often doesn't get talked about, but Granada away in the Europa League last year, his control is incredible. And I remember speaking to some people who've been on the bench after that game and they just said, he's got that in him. He can produce that moment, bang, control a ball. Top, top players can do that. I just don't think we're seeing it enough. You bear in mind, he scored that goal when uh, he was in the midst of that really bad yeah, ankle injury. Yeah, yeah. So I know he, mitigating he, the only time he could wear shoes was when he was wearing football yeah. boots. His ankle was that swollen. Um, he's played a lot of football while injured for United because there was no other option. This is the first time in Rash's career where he actually can be sat down, not just for, oh, you need a rest for tactical reasons, which Solskjaer didn't really do, but also for, for, for personnel reasons. And I think that's a very interesting crossroads for any footballer in their career not just Rashford and it's the how do you how do you cope or get your 
spot back. Jaden Sancho's doing really well on the left hand side right now. He's one form player. And on the other you know, on the other flank, it's Anthony Alanga. It's one reason why why um why Rangnick chooses Alanga. He just thinks that he, he follows instruction and Carl said he's played a lot of football this season. He's played a lot of football. He's played 46 times for England and he's 24 years old, Marcus. And Mm -hmm. I think fans are revisionist over former players. They forget that Ryan Giggs had bad seasons, not just bad months, bad seasons. But fans, when they look back, obviously a great, great player, great servant for the club, they tend to remember the positives and not the negatives. Marcus is not having a, a good time of it. I'd love him to get out of it. I don't know how he gets out of it. Um, do you think he's happy, Carl? Do you think he's happy playing at Manchester United? I think so. When we came into this season, and, and you know, Rafael Varane's come in, Jaden Sancho's been signed, Ronaldo, and eventually Ronaldo comes in at the end of at the end of the summer window. Bear in mind, Rashford's you know, rehabbing his shoulder. You you look at that team sheet and you go, the best team, the best version of that team is probably Rashford on the left, Sancho on the right hand side, Ronaldo up top. Uh, and then it just didn't really happen, right? Rashford comes back probably early from recovery from that shoulder surgery. And his first game is off the bench against Leicester City, which is the beginning of the downward slide and trajectory for Solskjaer. He's once again thrown in, into uh, more dysfunction at Man United. And he's once again being asked, can you fix this? Which he's he had done previously. And I think he's just unfortunately got lost in the shuffle because Sancho's come out Sancho's because of the problems at right back at Manchester United Sancho probably needs to play on the left hand side right now which means Rashford needs to go on the right hand side um, I've spoken on this podcast how I think Rashford's really good on the right hand side but also I think the thing United do where they constantly allow Sancho and Rashford to swap isn't helpful for Rashford I think if you're going to play him on the right just keep him on the right hand side for 90 minutes so he doesn't have the he doesn't constantly go oh I can cut your side oh I can't because I think he he just prefers clarity and I think the best Marcus Rashford games if you look at it are when he is the he's got the clearest vision of what to do in the game so if you think about games like uh, against Liverpool on the Jose Mourinho his whole job was attack the space Trent Alexander Arnold leaves cut inside shoot and he did that twice and he scored twice or when he has games against City or when he has games against Granada he has a very simple job. Whereas I think when he came into foot, into this season, he had maybe one too many jobs because United are just completely collapsing. And then Rangit comes in, who wants a different set of instructions. I think you've touched on an interesting point there, Carl, in the fact that since Marcus has been a first-team player uh, in the last six years, Laurie, he's, he's had Louis van Gaal with a set idea of how he wants his players to play. He's had Jose Mourinho with a set idea of how he wants his players to play. He's had Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with a different idea of how he wants his players to play. Now he's got Ralph Rangnick with a different idea again. That There aren't many lads who have played the number of games that he has at this age who has had to deal with all these different ideas going around his head all the time. Maybe making slight excuses considering all the other players have had to deal with this as well. But Marcus has been one of the constants throughout that time. Is that an issue, do you think? Do you think the fact that he still doesn't feel like he's got a specialist position, do you think the fact that he's not had a sort of stable coaching throughout his time has had an effect and we're starting to see the result of that? Yeah, I think so. And that's fair to say. Um, we did a piece um, earlier this season after, I think it was the Wolves game, wasn't it, where he, he sort of didn't run for a, for a rebound that, uh, from a Jaden Sancho shot when... 
you know, it kind of looked really bad. It kind of looked, did, did, did he want to go for that ball? What was, what's going on with Marcus? So we kind of did a piece on that. And, and one of the things that kind of came out was this idea that, you know, the coaching at United has been, um, you know, changed, you know, from, from season to season almost. Um, and you look at someone like Raheem Sterling at Man City, who's had Pep Guardiola for what, five, six years maybe now. And he's had that consistency. And people might say, well, I think Marcus Rashford's actually a more skilled individual than Raheem Sterling, perhaps. Um, but actually, Sterling knows what he needs to do for Man City in that team. Um, he obviously, you know, he has to work hard as well. So there's that. that's the one thing that maybe, you know, the, pre- the, the pressing that, that Marcus Rashford sometimes does I think can can be better, you know, in terms of the way that it's targeted or the kind of intensity of it. But then again, it takes the whole team to do that. So it's like, you know, if he goes and, and somebody else doesn't, then, you know, he might then think, okay, well, do I do it next time? You know, that, that kind of uncertainty. So you need a whole team collectively doing it. And that's probably where Sterling benefits from it. Um, you know, because you've got a guy like Pep Guardiola, genius manager, genius coach that absolutely demands that of his players uh, as, a, as a rule. I think equally, you know, he... he, he he probably does need just like a moment to kind of consider his game. What is he absolutely brilliant at um, and, and do more of that? I think Carl touched on the, the kind of shot against Atletico where you're looking at that thinking, no, please don't shoot from there. It was like 40 yards out. You know, the chance of scoring is so, so minimal. Keep, keep possession of the ball and try and sort of work space a little bit better. So th- those moments where you think perhaps when he was coming through as, as a as a sort of teenager and he, he did stuff off the cuff and it was brilliant and, and you're kind of going, wow, do more of that. I think now obviously his game needs to be different just because he's more mature and you know it, it can't happen all the time that you have a shot and it goes in. I don't really want to bring this up, but I know people will be thinking along these lines, Carl, so I think we should address it. The, the idea that all the things that he's done off the pitch, all the incredible impact that he's made in society, things like doing the book with yourself has had some effect on Rashford's form. Can we just put that to bed, please? Will you answer the criticism? Yeah. Well, again, I help write his book. I'm currently helping him write another book, World Book Day and all that. Um, But I'd say his commitment to to Manchester United and football is, is steadfast, right? So there's been more than one incident where you know we're having a chat and he's like, hang on, I've got to go do Manchester United things. I think football was allowed to have lives and and Solskjaer spoke about that quite eloquently during the closed door football. He said this was really hard for his players because they weren't, he said being a good football player means you have to be boring, means you have to get enough sleep, means you have to not really go outside too often and maybe maybe once a week or once every other month you can you can go to cinema or you can go to a restaurant with friends and to be a good Man United player you have to be steadfastly sparsely boring. I don't think Rashford incredible political campaigning uh, and trying to get hundreds of thousands of children fed and help with their literacy is, is making him a poorer football player. I would say what Laurie said, which is there's been massive managerial dysfunction. He's had, he's been told varying things by varying coaches. You remember his, his debut goal for, for Michelin. Louis van Gaal comes out the game, you know, at, at, at full time and says, this young Matt Rashford boy, he's good. But at half time, I basically told him to stand within the width of the six yard box. And that's how he wants to operate. And then that, that was what he did against Van Hart, which was basically just stand really central and just apply one touch finishes. Mourinho comes in and he's like, right, you're on the left now. And then you're going to be basically a second striker. Solskjaer comes in, says you're on the left, but also allows loads of freedom and interpretation. And our rankings come in and go, right, sometimes you're on your left, sometimes you're on the right. 
um, you're allowed to swap with Jaden Sancho during certain periods of time. It's going to be really important for you to track back. What do you mean no one's told you how to track back? Okay, now I have to teach you what to track back is. It's more than just running in a, in a negative direction. You have to run at certain angles and curve your bending runs and talk to other teammates and whatnot. So I think that's the difficult thing. I had a look at Rashford's last minute winners for Man United because he scored four. He scored four 90-minute uh, four goals after the 90th minute for Manchester United. That's that's the highest in United history. It's the highest in Premier League history. And three of those goals have come from coming off the bench. One of those goals came from him starting on the right-hand side. One of them came on... Two of those goals came after Mourinho. One of them's a lucky, weird deflection against Bournemouth. Uh, and it, if you look at all the, the post-match press conference comments about Rashford, and he can just keep doing this. I think what's become quite interesting about United and Rashford is they've got a very talented local lad who very clearly loves the football club and uh, and I, I'm sure there's people who listen to this podcast who play FIFA or football manager and there's loads of stuff if you play go in the games you can't buy Marcus Rashford he just will not leave and it's one of those weird bugs that if he does leave or go to City I was like hang on no the game's broken that's like the perception of Rashford and I think a lot of United fans can't imagine Marcus Rashford playing somewhere else because he loves the club. Sometimes I feel as if, you know, if, if it's quite odd that he's never really been the number one guy at United, even though he is loved by United fans, right? You think about, you come through at 18, you're like, okay, one day he'll be the starting striker. And you're like, oh wait, he hasn't nailed down a position. But he'll be a consistent starter. Sometimes. And it's the thing of, United have never really built a whole team of Marcus Rashford. And... I mean, this is very much dependent on your perspective. Has Rashford ever hit that long, consistent spell where you go, United should build a team around Marcus Rashford? And I think that's the difficult thing. I think that's that's the confusing thing about Marcus Rashford is that he's five, maybe six years on. We're still not quite sure about his best position. We're still not quite sure about what to do next. I mean, United can't score many goals right now and Rashford scored loads of goals for Man City. And yet, if you ask most United fans, should you play? Would you play Rashford up top as the number nine against City? That's the thing, isn't it? And that's the question that we're asking: Would you start him? And and Andy summed it up when he says, "I don't know." There's one thing though I think we can all agree, and all the fans listening to this will agree as well. We really hope that he adds to his Manchester derby moments this weekend. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're going to move on from talking about Rashford now. We're going to talk about great Manchester Derby memories that we've all got. Um, Andy, I'll let you kick this off because you've got the deepest... Uh, Track record history of us all, considering you're, um, you're older. Young. So, <laughs> what would you go for? What's your best memory? Getting beat uh, at, at Main Road about 1990. Brian McClare scoring a couple of goals, um, getting a free a free old draw actually. So it's not even a win. Ninety three, two nil down. Uh, City fans singing 2-0 up and you effed it up. Galatasaray because Manchester United had gone out of Europe and then Roy Keane and Cantona combining for Manchester United to win 
3-2, that was brilliant. I think the 5-0 at Old Trafford in 94, I will move away from the early 90s, I'm not stuck in that era, trust me. <laughs> I think that finally got rid of the 5-1, which was September 89, that was that was huge. I mean, for years, City fans would taunt me and just go 1-2, that That's all they had for a long a long time. Um, the, the Michael Owen game, there's been so many, the, the Wayne Rooney um, game. I love it when we beat City away. I used to love going to, to Main Road. It was a proper football ground in the middle of inner city, Moss Side. It was a pretty unforgiving place to go to. Um, there's been some terrible Manchester derbies as well. And I can remember for a long time thinking it, it doesn't live up to the hype compared to the great derbies of world football. And I've been fortunate enough to travel to them. It's not actually that good. The games are pretty disappointing. The atmosphere's not as good as Mancunians might like to think it is. But there's been some decent moments. In in mo- more recent times, I thought United's best performance of the 18-19 season was away at City. Um, absolutely blitzed them. That was the most idealised version of, I think, what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wanted his Manchester United team to be. Just lightning quick, attacking against the... The, one of the best two teams in the league and blitzing them. But. One of my earliest memories of going to the match with my dad was the 5-0 against City. I can remember vividly uh, after the game going back down onto the concourse and there was a guy sat with the biggest grin you've ever seen, banging on top of a plastic bin. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five nil. And it makes sense now you saying that that's what the City fans did to you because clearly that guy had probably had it all the time um, in those, what, four or five years since that game as well. City fans saying the same thing to him. And that's a brilliant memory. That's one of my earliest memories of going to the game at, at Old Trafford. Laurie? Memories. The one that stands out for me is the 4-2 in the FA Cup. Um, I didn't go to many um, Manchester derbies because City weren't really around in the, the top flight when I was growing up. But yeah, that 4-2 one was one that I actually went to with my dad. Um, and, you know, obviously Gary Neville gets sent off done in the first half. I've just refreshed my mind in, in preparation for this podcast. I, I watched it back and it is quite funny. Um, you know, Neville goes for the dive over Tarnat, tries to win a penalty, slaps the turf in frustration. I'd love to see, you know, when he's calling out players for diving now on Monday Night Football <laughs> or whatever. Jamie Carragher should just, just, yeah, just relay this video because then <laughs> McManaman comes in. And I think because, you know, you've got the whole perhaps Liverpool element to it with Steve McManaman. Gary Neville sees red, headbutts him. Jeff Winters there, you know, as the referee trying to grab him, get him out of the mix uh, and, and sends him off. Gary Neville sort of protests for a brief moment and then sprints down the tunnel. So it is a funny, funny episode. And, and you kind of, I remember being in the stands at the time thinking, this is an FA Cup game. You know, it's kind of, it, it meant a bit at the time because United weren't exactly, you know, riding high in the Premier League. Um, and so it kind of had a bit more importance to it. And obviously you've got you know, the big end of City fans. It, you know, there's much more animosity in there when it's um, an <laughs> FA Cup tie. United just blitzed them 3-0 up with 10 men. Um, ended up being 4-2, great game. Um, so that's kind of one that stands out in my mind. And then I realised there's another 4-2 that I went to under Van Hal. Do you remember this period? Yeah, it was like a halcyon period where they had like three or four wins in a row, didn't they? Villa, Villa, Liverpool, I think. When It, it seemed that the Spurs, clue... didn't it? When Rooney did his boxing celebration. It was that little run, wasn't was it? Was that the one? I think it started yep. with yeah. A... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I'm going on here now. I'm having a look. You're right, yeah. Yeah. 3-0 Tottenham, 2-1 away at Liverpool, 3-1 at home to Villa and then 4-2 at home to Man City. And wasn't this the period yep. where he had like um, Ashley Young, yep. 
uh, Ander yep. Herrera and Meron Fellaini on the kind of left flank. Like, and it was like this triangle of players on the left and a triangle on the right that just worked <laughs> at the time, wasn't there? It was crazy, period, wasn't yeah. it? And we thought he'd unlock the code for, for United being successful. And <laughs> Ashley then Young the next... and Marouane Fellaini keeping Di Maria and Falcao up. Yeah, pretty much. What yeah. It, was, it was beautiful. Carl? How do we pick a modern one? Go to University Ramat 2009. This is when I start going to pubs and being able to watch Sky easier. So that little period where City are slowly rising and slowly competing for FA Cups and slowly competing for, for Premier League titles, I remember those games quite vividly. Rooney Shinner. I mean, he was having a terrible game. And it is a shinner, but still, it's beautiful. It sticks in the memory. The 4-3 sticks in the memory. Just sort of Rio Ferdinand's light relief when Michael Owen scores. One that does stick in uh, was the the 3-2 where Van Persie scores in the last minute because I, I broke my laptop celebrating it. So this was, I, I just graduated and I, I didn't go to the pub. I watched it via uh, certain streaming methods, shall we say. Uh, and... Van Persie lines up for the free kick and I didn't realise how delayed my stream was. Uh, and my mate is looking at his phone and he's going, I think, I think you've won this game. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah whatever. I'm not paying attention to it. Van Persie scores his free kick going over. I think Nasri ducks out the way. and like, Oh, Nasri got dog's abuse for that yeah, yeah, yeah. for quite some time. Mancini yeah. calls him, called him like half a man or something. Says half yeah. a man on the wall. Yeah. Um, and it, and it that go- was the polite version, I think. <laughs> And it goes in and I sort of had my laptop. I was like, yeah, just like screaming and shouting. And I basically throw the laptop in the air and it, like, I drop it. And I've realised what I've just done. I've broken my, my Dell laptop going, it's worth it. Done the derby. <laughs> United are going to win I, I interviewed, I interviewed Rooney and Van Persie off the pitch that day <laughs> in, the, in the tunnel at Manchester City after United had done that. That was one of the highlights of me covering matches early on. Uh, people still laugh at me for my face um, when... The, the game happened at Old Trafford where City scored quite a few goals and United scored one uh, and I just looked absolutely miserable. Also going to the last derby at Main Road um, in the Gene Kelly stand at, at, in the corner and getting absolutely soaked with my dad and then getting locked in at the end just to top it off because that was around the time that lock-ins were first sort of getting popular. Um, that was dreadful. Uh, I took a job in the burger bar at City putting blue ketchup on burgers and hot dogs for a couple of months just so I could get in to watch the first Manchester derby at the City of Manchester Stadium, as it was called then. And obviously you had to work before the game and up to half-time. You were free just after half-time. Went and found a steward that I'd made friends with. He told me where there was a seat to watch it. I sat down. I think it was 2-1 at the time. United had scored towards the end of the first half to get back in the game. Uh, And then... Trevor Sinclair scored and everyone jumped all over me and I just didn't know what to do. And in the end, I left before Sean Wright Phillips scored the fourth because it was pretty much the worst experience of watching Manchester United play anywhere, being jumped on by excitable City fans. Another one that really sticks in my mind, another period was 2009-10. We talked uh, a little bit already about the 4-3, but Manchester United had a run of three games where they scored 90th minute winners against Manchester City in that season. The first game was um, the 4-3, of course, where Michael Owen scored in stoppage time. But then they played each other in the semi-finals of the EFL Cup as well, or whatever the League Cup was called back then. Uh, United obviously lost away uh, at the Etihad and then won 3-1 at home and Wayne Rooney scored the winner in stoppage time that day. And then just to top it off, 
this was sort of peak noisy neighbour time as well and United silencing them, in the words of Ferguson. Um, the third game, it happened again, didn't it? Paul Scholes scored the winner in stoppage time at the Etihad. I just remember thinking that that would never end, really, and, and obviously it has. That game in January 2010 was the first time I thought City have got a proper side here. If we're going to go on low points, the FA Cup semi-final at Wembley Absolutely. a year later, because I thought City are going to probably win something here. But the atmosphere at Old Trafford for that second leg of the League Cup game, City had the whole of K-Stand. I was in K-Stand, so you could look up and see them right above you. It was it was brilliant. And I know we we're going to touch on how City support has, has changed. And I think it has changed. And... I'm from a part of Manchester where it's mainly, it's overwhelmingly United and the City fans call themselves Blues in Bandit Country, Stretford and Urmston. And and they're proper Blues. They've gone to the match for years and years. And I always respected them as, as football fans, even if we just used to hammer them and take the piss out of them because they would go to Grimsby and we were going to Juventus away or whatever. And I just find my relationship with them, we just don't talk about football, which is bizarre. And it's, some of these lads are some of my best mates. I just think, I don't know if we're being really immature, that we just we won't find any common ground. And it, it's definitely changed. And I also know um, some City fans who, who go everywhere with City. And, and my sister married one of them. And, and I'm on about, if City play in Moscow behind closed doors and get ordered not to go, they'll still go. And I sense some disillusionment among them because City have changed and they're blinded by this brilliance because they are the football is brilliant but it has come it has come at a cost for them uh, they've lost something of the old city and I think some of them miss that I think on balance most of them really enjoy uh, what Manchester City have become but something have, has been lost of the old of the old um of the old city and the demographics of the fan base are definitely changing uh, as well. They're averaging over 50,000. They're better supported now than at any point in their history. And from a footballing perspective, they have been exceptionally well run and Guardiola is, is a brilliant manager and Manchester United could have learned from the way they've been run from a football perspective, from their recruitment perspective. They're going to Benfica, they're getting Ruben Diaz, they're paying top dollar, of course they are, but they, they just their recruitment has been much smarter than United and, and that's why they've been, been winning the league. I don't pay that much attention to them. It might sound bizarre and I just don't pay that much attention to them, but this weekend I will be. Uh, with uh, with some nervousness. In fact, I'm saying this, I'm putting my arm <laughs> in, don't I? Because I'm nervous about it. Right, all right, then let's round off any other business. Laurie, you've been at Manchester United's UEFA League match this week. You've written about an interesting angle to it as well. It was a disappointing result, but your article on The Athletic has quite a, an interesting takeaway. Yeah, I mean, I think the overall impression was quite a positive one from United's performance, you know, against Borussia Dortmund, who are, you know, a club that clearly has uh, a lot of pedigree in terms of developing youth. That's the whole business model, isn't it? You know, might not produce all their own players, but they certainly buy at a young age um, and they, you know, manage to get you know, a good price for them ultimately. Um, and United were the better team, really. You know, they, they, they drew 2-2. Um, both of Dortmund's goals were counter-attacked, which is a bit frustrating because um, I think United knew going in that they that would be their um, sort of modus operandi. But I think there's some good moments. You know, Hannibal Mesbury 
again, you know, uh, got, got kicked quite a bit, but came through, sort of was really demanding the ball in those key areas. Um, so I think he he could be knocking on the door a little bit for, for maybe getting around the first team towards the end of the season, just in a... I mean, he's training with them at the moment, but you sort of wonder if he could perhaps have some kind of impact, not like Anthony Alanga, but, you know, just get in the mix a little bit. Um, because Ralph Ranjit was there on Tuesday night in the stands uh, alongside John Murta, Darren Fletcher. So it was a good turnout. Anthony Alanga was there as well. He'd scored in this competition earlier in the season. So you can see the development um, from him. And, and, and therefore, I think the players that played in this game actually have a genuine you know, prospect of doing something in, in future at United. The other two that I would probably pick out, Alvaro Fernandez, the left-back, he's had a really good season. Um, and also... Um, Alejandro Garnacho, who's the sort of left winger, he's, he's you know, rapid and he'll be in the FA Youth Cup as well, which is on Wednesday against Wolves at Old Trafford. So another chance to see these, this kind of crop of players. Um, but yeah, the angle that I had sort of took from it a little bit was that, yes, United are you know steeped in history when it comes to the academy. Um, but in recent years, have they absolutely um, used it as a way of just you know adding up, topping up the kind of budget really, I suppose, because there was um, a report that came out last week um, from the um, Football Institute, the Football Observatory, where it sort of ranked United as um, basically bottom, top, top, top 50 it was, but United were snuck in there 50th in terms of how much money they've um, sort of sold academy players for in the past uh, six, seven years it is, since um, July 2015. So when you look at the likes of Man City, you know, I think United's total was 60 million euros, Man City's was 140 million euros. And it just, it sort of shows, I suppose, that, you know, there is scope perhaps for United to get a bit better there in that situation. I know that people will say, well, actually, United are producing players for the first team. You don't want to be selling these players, actually, if they're, if they're good enough. But I think there's clearly uh, sort of a, a middle ground where actually, if United kind of, you know, realise that these players perhaps won't make it at United, get a good price for them, move them onto a good club that, that's beneficial for, the, for their careers and then you can sort of recoup a bit of money and then hopefully that goes into the transfer budget for the first team. So that was kind of where I was getting at with the piece and, and listen, the, the game against Dortmund was just a snapshot of where United are at um, but I think it was a good point at which to kind of bounce off and, and go, okay, where's where's the United Academy looking at and and uh, what can we see in the future? Go and have a look at Laurie's piece if you want to read more about that. Carl, you've been writing about who Manchester United's free kick taker should be. Big question. Yeah. Uh, so there was a moment again in the first leg against Atletico Madrid where Cristiano Ronaldo stood over a direct free kick and I very strongly went, just get him off it. Just it, it, No. Um, he hasn't scored a direct free kick in, well, at a time of recording, 607 days. Uh, and that is, I think he's now taken 59 free kick attempts without scoring. Uh, and something I did find mildly interesting in the nil-nil draw against Watford was there was a rather presentable free kick from about 35 yards out that he walked away from. He left it to Bruno Fernandes and Alex Talis, uh, and uh, Talis took the free kick. He's left-footed and he scored three free, kick for, three kicks for Porto. So I look at the numbers, uh, did a little bit of assessment, had a look at some of the free kick goals that Bruno Fernandes has scored because I thought his free kick taking technique is quite interesting in that it looks like he's gonna try and do it one way but he actually borrows a lot um, from the if you are a listener of a certain age I remember indirect free kicks and how everyone used to take them in around like the 90s and 2000s he takes them a bit like that as well so I uh, I think I know the hierarchy and who should be taking free kicks from Manchester United now so give it a look well if you want to know the answer to that you know what you need to do Andy You've been meeting Lee Sharp, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I went to see Lee and 
ahead of the game in Atletico and I'm just transcribing it and writing it up now and there's a lot of words there. He was really good. He was really good value. And I, I sat down and one of his mates just brought me a pint over after five minutes and I just thought, I'll be really professional here and just have a coffee f- for now. And and he's great company. And I noticed last week Roy Keane picked him out as someone who he'd most like to go to a party with. Of course, Lee was a, a good-looking lad, but I find him, when I'm going through the transcription, which sometimes as a journalist you can come away from an interview thinking that was really good and then you transcribe it and you think actually he's not said anything that's that interesting there i'm finding that that's not the case with lee sharp and there's a huge response when i said that i've just interviewed him on twitter huge response and i think that the class of 92 lads and beckham their profiles went collectively and individually to um a really really high level but lee was a big big star just before those lads came through and I enjoyed making the effort to go and speak to him face to face and I hope that people who subscribe to The Athletic will really enjoy reading the interview. Yeah, sounds like something to look forward to. Uh, It's been brilliant to do this with the three of you. I'm sure everyone listening has enjoyed it as well so thank you very much for being on with us and also for you guys at home for listening as well. If you want access to any of the articles that we've spoken about on the podcast, remember there's that offer on at the moment. You can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. We'll be back on Monday to react to the Manchester derby. Let's hope we've got something worth reacting to. See you then. The Athletic.